You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 378 this time, Protestations. Someone did write to me once and raise an objection to the habit of leaving podcasts on a cliffhanger. And I suppose it can be a bit annoying, but somehow if there is a cliff in the vicinity, I think it falls into the silly not to category to refuse to hang on it. But I'm sorry if it's annoying. Anyway, Charles is in Edinburgh. Feeling rather ground down by events and the relentless nature of the Covenanters, he has extended the hand of friendship, but Argyle and his colleagues have made it pretty clear that said hand is nothing more than their due, and he's jolly lucky still to be attached to it anyway, so there are no special favours to be had here. Edinburgh, meanwhile, was absolutely rammed with armed men. All the magnates had borne their armed retinues with them, as was their wont. So the place was something of a tinderbox with rumours and intrigue, but nothing in the king's attitude did anything but calm things down. He was being something of a lamb, meek and mild. Then, towards the end of September, strangely, Charles began to get a bit more flinty. He really held the line about his people, the so-called incendiaries, like Montrose. He argued tooth and nail about the composition of his Privy Council and insisted on presenting a list of possibles from which Parliament could then choose, rather than the other way round, as Argyle wanted. The creation of the list would, of course, preserve the greater part of his prerogative. So this was strange. The sweetness and the light appeared to have gone for some reason. Why could this be? Well, the answer was shockingly revealed on Monday the 11th of October 1640 when, when news broke. Argyle and Hamilton were going to be arrested and forcibly removed from Parliament as traitors to the King and architects of all the King's woes. It was another plot, another coup. Faced with the prospect of naked force and probably fighting on the streets with all those retinues, Argyle and Hamilton fled the capital to Hamilton's fortified house near Falkirk. Edinburgh was in a foment and, as I say, stuffed with armed men. So now that the news was out, any attempted coup would have a hard time ahead of it without the element of surprise. And then, the following day, on the 12th, Charles appeared at Parliament in the company of 500 men accompanied by many of the nobles who'd signed up to that Cumbernauld band the year before, Montrose's royalist and anti-Argyle allies. Well, this was dramatic... Charles took the floor in Parliament. His emotional protestation could have won multiple BAFTAs and the automatic award of an equity card. There were tears, gentle listeners, tears that dropped 
like holy water into the ragged red sore of conflict. He poured forth his deep regret and pain at this incident. His protestation included vehemently and passionately asserting his innocence of any connection with the coup. He talked to his love for his old mucker Hamilton, with whom he had been sharing a bedroom in Edinburgh, it should be noted. The coup had failed. The following investigation revealed that there was indeed a coup. It was led by one Will Murray and a group of army officers. There was indeed a body of militia waiting in the wings for the call with the support of a lieutenant general, and it had been planned to spring that very day. But one of the conspirators, John Hurry, changed his mind in a hurry, ha ha ha, in the wee hours of Monday morning and spilled the beans to Lord General Alexander Leslie, who immediately and with dispatch took these beans to Argyle and the news was out. If it had been pursued without the benefit of surprise, there can be little doubt of the resulting bloodbath. Now then. People who know these things, proper historians, debate about whether or not Charles knew about this. There is no smoking gun. There is no letter from Charles saying something like the Russian bear molts in winter to trigger the coup. But Will Murray was very close to the king, part of his bedchamber. Most people were convinced at the time that he was guilty as charged, but it really rather favoured the Covenanter cause that they should, after all. Anyway... I leave it to your gut instincts to make a judgment. But it was for sure the end of Charles's flintiness. He was forced to cave in on the issue of his new Privy Council, now stuffed with the supporters of the Covenanter cause. He was indeed, as he had feared, no more powerful than the Doge of Venice. Not that I could present you with an evaluative framework of how to carry out such a comparison, but you know. Anyway, Hamden and Fines, of course, dashed off a report and sent it south, where the news of a second attempted coup would do no end of good for the reformers' cause. So, we'd better quickly go back down south then and pick up the story there. And to be honest with you, if you are essentially rooting for the cause of the reform, you'll be worried. And if you are a Carolean, it'll put a smile on your cheeks. Do you all have sides, I wonder, by the way? It would be interesting to know. I did worry a bit about talking about all the politics and nuance. I could have just gone for a blockbusting good old cause approach or fly the flag for Charles the Martyr. Might have been more fun. Oh well, too late now. Back to the gum-bleeding history. Anyway, what had been happening in the houses of the mice while the King Cat was away with his Scottish cheese? Well, one of the things that had happened was that England, and London in particular, was awash with print and debate. The world of publishing had gone absolutely barking mad. Printers were setting up everywhere, flooding the streets with pamphlets, news sheets, a trend that, let me promise you, will continue in spades and will come back to. London was chaotic enough already. I have often wondered, have I said this before, that if Charles had made like his son and removed Parliament to Oxford, the English Revolution might never have happened. One ambassador, French I think, said at the time, London is the only rebel. An exaggeration, but there is a kernel in there. London was growing like Topsy, just to set the tea scene for you, driven by migration from English regions as much as by organic growth. In fact, it relied absolutely on the rumours that its streets were paved with gold. They weren't, by the way, more poo than gold. In 1600, there are 
200,000 people. In 1650, it's maybe 400,000 people. By 1700, it's 600,000. I mean, it's insane. The East End in particular was exploding in population. 21,000 in 1600, 91,000 in 1700. There were all kinds of nationalities washing around there. Irish, Dutch, Scandis, Flemish, French Protestants, black Africans through trade networks, Indian sailors from Bengal as the East India Company grew, building a dock there in the 1640s as London's reputation for shipbuilding grew. Out here, there was terrible overcrowding. There was lots of building along the river in particular, but it couldn't keep up, and buildings were shoddily made. Existing tenements were often divided up into smaller and smaller units, and the smoke! All those coal and wood domestic fires transformed the London skies into a fug. From Hampton Court, a Dutchman was amazed that he couldn't see St Paul's anymore. Too much obscured by smoke to see. The smell was pretty excruciating too. John Evelyn thought that it was damaging everyone's health, as you could see in the churches. Was there ever such a coughing and snuffling, where the barking and spitting is incessant? Of course, the physicians couldn't do much about it. I rather like John Chamberlain's quote, that they did more harm than good with their potions. So that I am now resolved to commit myself to good order and government and let the physic alone, and if I had done so from the beginning, I make no doubt that I would have been a sound man by this time. In terms of poo, by the way, there was actually a system for clearing out everyone's septic tanks. The night soil men managed and licensed by one of the aldermen of the city. Apparently, things get much worse in the 19th century with the arrival of running water and the water closet, which makes all those septic tanks overflow. But that'll be for the future something to look forward to. But there are loads of other sources of filth too. The separation between town and country was not the binary thing it is now. People kept pigs. I mean, why wouldn't you? Life is always better with a piggy around the place, but it is undeniably smellier. There was all the detritus from abattoirs and vegetable markets, and we've talked about the apprentices. David Lupton, in 1632, was astounded by the variety and the chaos of it all. She's certainly a great world. There are so many little worlds in her. Everything was buzzing. The Thames is relatively quiet these days. Back then, there were 20,000 boatmen plying their trade alone. That is a lot of boat, ladies and gentlemen. A lot of boat. A massive part of the general hubbub was the explosion of print, which only got worse or better, depending on your point of view, with the destruction of the body that was responsible for censoring print, the Court of Star Chamber. In March 1641, for example, the print house of the Calverts, Giles and Elizabeth, was working away in the area around St Paul's, like so many others. That was where they kind of hung out. Their place had a cellar, a shop with a street frontage, four rooms above the shop, and a little yard behind the property with the privy. The Calverts were not only printers, their shop at the sign of the Black Spread Eagle would become known as a destination for radicals, a place to stay if you are from out of town, to meet, to have their posts sent to, to have their scandalous literature printed and distributed. They would become known by their opponents as a seller of soul poisons, their print shop described as the forge of the devil. The Calverts were a team 
Whenever Giles was locked up for a period, Elizabeth would carry on the business. After the restoration, things got much harder as censorship got tighter again. But after Giles's death, Elizabeth kept going, despite being burned out by the Fire of London in 1666, for example. In 1669, she would start a secret press in Southwark, where things were rather easier, there was less censorship going on. It wasn't until 1674 that she paid off her last apprentice, and 1675 when she died. Anyway, there was a point at the beginning of all that. The point was that in March 1641, they published a religious tract by the future leveller Richard Overton. It was snapped up by Star Chamber and banned. By June 1641, Star Chamber was no longer there to do such things, and so things absolutely ballooned. Here are some stats coming out for you. Some stats about the number of surviving items of print. Is your pen poised? Right. In the 1630s, we have about 600 known titles published a year. And then it goes up a bit in 1640, fair dues, to 840. So it's going up anyway. In 1641, after Star Chamber crashed and burned, it was 2,041. It went potty, essentially. For many, this was freedom. Henry Burton, who had been prosecuted alongside William Prynne, celebrated what Parliament had wrought, writing of how previously many mouths were stopped, many mouths shut up. But that now, Parliament hath opened their mouths. It has opened the prisons. Many, however, saw this a completely different way as chaos, mayhem and social disorder. But we'll come to that later, no doubt. But for the moment, Parliament had allowed a conversation to start across religion, certainly, and increasingly across politics. And the reformers were innovative too. They were aware of the power of communication not only to create debate, and therefore, of course, sadly, division, but also to bind people together. And to demonstrate that, I want to talk a bit more about an extraordinary example of how Parliament sought to communicate and build a sense of purpose, the protestation. Now, I mentioned the protestation a couple of episodes ago during the dramatic Strafford story, but I didn't want to get distracted at that point. But I do now, so sorry. So, let me remind you of the circumstances. The debate in Parliament about Strafford's trial and impeachment is in full flow. The King has already signed away many of his prerogative powers of tax, but is refusing to back down on his lead councillor, the Earl of Strafford. And suddenly, the curtains on the hope for a peaceful reform are stripped aside. When a plot is discovered by the King to seize control of the Tower, another plot is discovered to spring Strafford from the Tower and take him to safety. Then on the 3rd of May, Charles ordered Captain Billingsley and a hundred men to take control of the Tower. There were rumours that the French were planning to invade on behalf of Henrietta Maria. The army in York was widely perceived to be favourable towards the King and grumpy with Parliament at its lack of play and staffed by many Catholic officers. There is a fever of fear and a threat of imminent violence. Bayek! In the mayhem, in Parliament, Henry Martin stands up and invokes the spirit of the Elizabethan bond of association. That bond, demanded by Francis Walsingham and William Cecil in the midst of the blizzard of assassination plots against Elizabeth, a bond to tie the nation together to defend their queen. And here, thought Martin, 
was another moment when the people needed to gather together and join in a bond to defend their nation and its liberties against those that would tear it down. And the Commons rose enthusiastically to the idea. Although much later, when Charles II's closest adviser after the Restoration, Edward Hyde, would describe it as an atmosphere of insolence and sedition, which I suppose is one way of describing a revolution. The Commons appointed a seven-man team to draft the protestation and they voted the same day and the very next day on the 4th of May every member in the House of Lords and the House of Commons had subscribed to it. It was not at that time required that anyone else take it but it was suggested they might like to. So that's the background. In the midst of what felt like an existential crisis the people representing the communities of England and Wales reached for a principle of community and association that was embedded in that Elizabethan bond. And the Scottish National Covenant must also have been in people's minds as an example of the power of association. But the principle and its political application goes way further back than that, back to the idea of Commonwealth, the community of the realm. The principle expressed in celebration of Simon de Montfort in 1258 in the Song of Lewis, let me quote you a line. Therefore, the community of the realm take counsel, and let there be decreed what is the opinion of the commonality to whom their own laws are best known. Stirring stuff, nothing about a rustianism there. At its heart is an attempt to reach out for and help create unity in the face of a threat to the commonwealth. So what did it say, the protestation? Well, there are two bits to it. A preamble saying why it's there, and the actual protestation to which the individual is asked to subscribe. As with pretty much everything in the revolution, there are two dangers the community felt they faced. A challenge to the true religion in the face of what it described as the designs of priests and Jesuits, adherence to the see of Rome, and a challenge to the laws and commonwealth. Endeavours to subvert the fundamental laws of England and Ireland and introduce the exercise of an arbitrary and tyrannical government. It's not specific about who's responsible for all this, apart from the designs of priests and Jesuits, but identifies pernicious and wicked councils, practices, plots and conspiracies. It meaningfully mentions that the long intermission and unhappy breach of parliaments hath occasioned many illegal taxations. I'm looking at you, Charlie boy. And that all of this meant that jealousies raised and fermented betwixt the king and the people to the hazard of his majesty's royal person. There's more, but you get the gist. Bad people making the good king mess with religion, oppress the people and we need to stand together to put that right and save both ourselves, the people, and our king. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewellery of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. 
The actual vow, as it was described, although basically it becomes known as the protestation oath and widely treated as an oath, committed the taker to maintain and defend the true religion as defined by the Church of England and also maintain and defend His Majesty's royal person, honour and estate, as also the power and privileges of Parliament, the lawful rights and liberties of the subject, and every person that maketh this protestation. The implication is that defending the king and true religion are linked. He makes no provision as to what happens if those two are in opposition, which of, of course is what the reformers believe is happening at the time. But of course, they think that's because of Lord and the Jesuits, and that the king will obviously see the light once those are cleared away. It is a statement in support of the Constitution, Parliament and the rights of the people in conjunction with the King. And while it is an individual commitment, it is also a community engagement to everyone else who takes part, a collective public engagement. So Parliament had the protestation printed and distributed throughout the country. The historian David Cressy, who knows a thing or two, comments that it is the first document to be printed by parliamentary instruction and it is not a bad place to start. Although it was decided that no one should be forced to take the oath for public office or anything like that, unlike James's Oath of Allegiance, for example, or the hated etc. oath, but Parliament still hoped everyone would subscribe to their protestation if they could be persuaded. So MPs advocated the oath to their local communities and their magistrates. It used to be thought that people took it here and there, but, you know, nothing major. But a recent study by John Walter has shown just how widely and comprehensively the oath was taken. People took it really seriously. It spread throughout England and Wales from the moment it was printed, many communities subscribing straight away in May 1641. Oliver Cromwell and John Lowry, MPs for Cambridge, recommended it to the aldermen there, adding that combination carries strength. Robert Harley was an MP for Herefordshire that would prove a royalist stronghold, though he and his wife Brilliana Harley held Puritan views and Brilliana would hold on to their house at Brampton against all comers until 1643. Brilliana, incidentally, left a huge collection of letters, so we'll hear more of her later. Anyway, Robert Harley sent back to their county magistrates the message that the enclosed protestation will represent unto you the zeal and prudent care of the House of Commons in asserting the truth of our religion and our fundamental laws. Subscribing to the protestation often started with the magistracy. A common approach was to use those occasions when they were together anyway, so at the quarter sessions of the county courts, for example, or the borough assemblies. But quickly, Reports could be found from around the country of whole communities taking part. But quite quickly, there were reports of whole communities taking part. So, the Sink Port of Rye, for example, all took the protestation on the 11th of May at an assembly where almost all of the inhabitants of our town appeared and willingly took it. A sort of process began to be adopted. There were no instructions sent by Parliament, but the City of London produced a set of orders. Those revolved about the place at the centre of every single community in early modern England, the church. So it became the job of the ministers to present the protestation to the congregation at the Sunday service in the morning. And very often they used the preamble to the protestation as their text to explain what it was. Then in the afternoon, the minister would then take the oath and the congregation would follow. 
Now, when they said subscribe, of course, they usually meant adult males. But one of the features of the protestation was that it quite often overrode the rules of patriarchy. So at Middleton in Essex, for example, it was reported that not one of the parish above said refused to join in this act, as well women and youth of both sexes gave their full consent. Now, of course, such an extraordinary undertaking did not always receive universal support. So in the suburban Middlesex parish of St Giles in the Field, the Lordian minister, William Hayward, had a protestation read, but he did his best to diss the whole thing by going for the mockery approach, using a ridiculous, absurd and disdainful manner with much scorn and jeering. Though, interestingly, much scorn and jeering did not go down well with the majority of his congregation. The vast majority of the parish took the oath anyway, and then to add insult to William's injury, paid extra to have their names engrossed on the protestation paper, a real statement. But there were confusions and disagreements as well. So what exactly were the rights and liberties of the people and parliament, or of the king? Exactly what was the detail of the beliefs of the Church of England. Sometimes questions such as these created arguments and divisions, and so in a way, the protestation gave a platform for such disagreements to be played out in communities. And in some cases, it encouraged radicalism, so there were multiple reports of altar rails being smashed and burned around the protestation time, and one minister wept that his parishioners turned against the Book of Common Prayer. Another, that someone whipped his surplus. His assumption, I guess, was that a surplus was taken as a popist item of clothing. Could, I suppose, simply be someone took a fancy to it. I quite like a surplus on occasion. The text was vague enough to be both exclusive, but also to be used to support a rather wide variety of points of view. So, to go back to the debate of a couple of episodes ago, Thomas Edwards used it as support for arguing against independency, whereas Catherine Chidley used it the very same thing in a completely the opposite direction in support of independency. The position of Catholics was quite interesting. So although they by now represented only a tiny percentage of the population, maybe 1-3%, to the protestation was vague enough to allow some of them to take the oath as well. For many it was a step too far, it has to be said. But at Midhurst, for example... 54 Catholics refused the oath initially, thought about it, and then 35 of them changed their minds later and took it anyway. There's another report that one recusant elegantly avoided it by being away, which is quite common, when the protestation was subscribed, but his servant, George Barrett, who was also a recusant, refused to make the protestation, but said he would be true to God and the country which by and large was the position of Catholics in microcosm, desperately and continually making the point that their religion did not mean they were not loyal. It's odd to me that I'd never heard about the protestation oath before and only discovered when doing a course a couple of years ago and digging around in the Henley Records, where I found something which gave a list of the 570 names and the note from the minister that which protestation was not refused by any to whom it was tendered. For some reason, the protestation doesn't figure very highly in the history of the civil wars, maybe because unlike the Scottish National Covenant, it didn't come to define the two sides, so many took it as a way specifically of actually maintaining the peace. But the protestation seems to me to be amazing, I mean, incredibly significant. Could we imagine subscribing to a national statement now in the UK? 
Not sure that's relevant, but it's an interesting example of the nature of society at the time. Oath-taking and subscribing was demonstrably a very serious business back then. People would hold back if they did not feel capable of living by it. Also, there's a feeling that the taking of oaths could really make a difference. It could save this and retrieve the situation. And communities also had a forum where they could all get together to make such a public commitment face-to-face through an established and shared local institution. It is, I think, a remarkable thing. The protestation was clearly also a very unusual event, even for the time, very out of the ordinary. It was an exceptional example of the nation's governors at the time reaching out to the governed, and as such, it had a significant impact in widening political participation and expanding the public sphere we've talked about. It promoted a popular parliamentarianism, and in that it's part of a trend that would be repeated in the Grand Remonstrance, which we'll come to later. The protestation would also have quite a long shelf life. People keep referring to it. So Parliament made increasing use of it to mobilise political, fiscal and military support. Groups as wide as the levellers and the clubmen would use it to legitimise their activities. It was also, in the end, putting all that together, it was an act of state building by Parliament. Right, enough of that. Back to Parliament. A bit of context. There are not many MPs around over the summer. It's been a long session, so many people went home and there was a plague in town, which was a powerful added inducement, of course. Therefore, it was quite difficult to even work up a forum in Parliament, but it didn't necessarily hold Pym back. The impact, really, was that the more radical MP stayed in town and he normally managed to rustle up a majority in the Lords. But it's a thin house. And meanwhile, despite the success of the protestation, the strength of the current was slackening for the reformers on the river of history. There were eddies and there were back currents. And talking of eddies, let me introduce you to Edward Nicholas. Honestly, Nicholas doesn't look like the stuff of heroes, although I'm not quite sure that there is such a look. It'd be sort of noble, I guess. Maybe square-jawed? Don't know. Answers on a postcard. But jaw, square or weak? Nicholas and Queen Henrietta Maria would become very influential politically for Charles, especially while he was away in Scotland. So we're going to spend the rest of the episode talking about them. Now, I am not sure that Henrietta Maria would appreciate me for mentioning Nicholas's name in conjunction with hers, because the two didn't really get on. Nicholas complained that the Queen gave Charles bad advice, and Henrietta Maria, for her part, conceived a vendetta against Nicholas when she learned he'd advised Charles that her Capuchin advisers really ought to go home. These are the Capuchin monks that Henrietta Maria had installed in her household since about the late 1630s. Just so happens the Capuchins had a particular mission for evangelising in Protestant areas in Europe. So really raise the temperature being in England and could not be described as diplomatic or sensitive in the current circumstances by the Queen. This personal vendetta, though, would ultimately end Nicholas's career, but that's very much for the future in exile. For now, both would be instrumental in delivering Charles's new strategy in England, his new strategy to build a royalist party in Parliament. If victory could not come via force or a coup, it would have to come through politics. 
Nicholas comes across as a rather attractive figure, actually. He's a son of Wiltshire, in his late 40s at this time, married to Jane Jay with seven children. He's an attractive figure in that he was both competent not one to push himself forward and it is so rarely the case as a history podcaster that you get to say that political history doesn't seem to be about the shy stay-at-home types with a passion for knitting or model building he was also universally recognized for his honesty and one historian observed they he may not have been able to and i quote internalize moral objections for the sake of his own advancement I think we all know what you're talking about. He demonstrated his skill at administration for the mighty Grand Duke of Buckingham and made a great job working in the Admiralty in the 1630s, but there his career had stalled. So he and Jane were making plans to retire quietly to life in the country for a spot of home-based hosiery, maybe. To give him his due, though, Charles recognised that he was a diligent, trustworthy and competent man that he could work with, and also, after the Strafford affair, his existing Secretary of State, Henry Vane Sr., had been recategorised in Charles's mental filing system under S for Stinker. So, before he went to try and make friends with the Scots, Charles made Nicholas his Secretary of State. Now, Nicholas was what you might call a constitutional royalist. This is a term often used with regards to the English Revolution, and it's often used to identify people like Edward Hyde, who are currently in the reformer camp, but will end up royalist. It's all rather difficult, because everyone has a different view, you see, of what the perfect and ancient constitution was. I mean, really, John Lambert would identify the answer to the problem in 1653 and just get people to write the darn thing down. Though that's not an idea that would stick, unless you happen to be every other country in the world apart from Britain, and New Zealand, apparently, and Israel a bit. Anyway, John Pym's view of the Constitution and Edward Hyde's view were very much part of a Venn diagram, shall we say, yet to be invented by Swiss Leonid Euler, by the way. A Venn diagram with an increasingly small overlapping component in the middle. So, a belief in the Constitution was no longer a rallying cry for unity. With every passing reform, it became a divisive issue, one that people argued about. But as far as Nicholas was concerned, there were no more changes needed. We already had the best composed and equalist government that ever was constituted under any monarch in the world. So, stop messing with it was, in essence, his view. Nicholas was being joined by other advocates that things had gone quite far enough now. So Lucius Carey, Viscount Falkland, shrank from the religious radicalism of the reformers and wanted now only the best and quickest way to peace. Edward Hyde was also starting his journey over to the side that had cookies, away from the side that drank only water and ten-day-old rye bread. There's a lovely conversation between Hyde and Charles around this time, which absolutely demonstrates that the king had a talent for party leadership and for engendering loyalty in those that basically agreed with him. So, the two had an interview, and Charles began by complimenting him, saying that he had heard from all hands how much he was beholden to him. He then asked him about the prospects of the Root and Branch Bill then in play. Now, Hyde was also not happy at the religious radicalism. He was a big believer in the C of E, very fond of dear old Mother Church. 
So he said that he thought it could be prevented, even though he was formerly a reformer who'd voted for Strafford's death. Charles looked at him gravely and conspiratorially confided, If you look to it that they do not carry it before I go to Scotland, I will undertake for the church after that time. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's a genius sleight of hand, isn't it? King to subject, drawing him into a partnership, stroking his ego as just the man to help save the church on who he, the king, could rely absolutely. Personal love and interest. Hyde was smitten. Hyde was lost to the cause of water and rye bread. OK, we should also talk about Henrietta Maria because she will be central from here on in. After Strafford squelched and rolled, she stayed quiet for a while. Or that's to say, she appeared to retreat to her own councils. But her attitude had changed from the rather conciliatory role she's played before Strafford's death. Partly, she feared for her life, as I've mentioned. Partly, she shared Charles's view of the dignity of the monarchy. Partly, she worried that Charles's position was increasingly deteriorating. Her letters to her sister, Carolina, full of anguish, that she was like a prisoner, that the king had lost all his power. So she becomes now a figure pushing Charles on to become more active, more aggressive. And in her attitude, she had none of the constraints that Charles continued to feel about the constitutional rules that needed to be observed. Her background, after all, in France was very different. Henrietta Maria would also take a very international view, which sort of fits with being the daughter of the King of France. And she was thoroughly motivated by the politics of dynasty. So she looked throughout her life for alliances and schemes with France, Spain and the papal court, and indeed in Catholic Ireland, with little positive result, it has to be said. The European powers really had troubles of their own to worry about. But Charles followed her lead on this. At this time, for example, she was working with Count Rossetti, the papal nuncio, to try and organise a subsidy of £150,000 for Charles. She had continual discussions with the French ambassador to boot. When Charles left for Scotland, he had a problem. The Privy Council was something of a mess, unable to offer him the support he needed as a result of all the appointments that he'd made as part of the Bedford Compromise, which had now crashed and had now burned. Henry Vane was tainted. Edward Nicholas was promising, but he was new. So it was to Henrietta Maria that he turned to boss things while he was away. The Venetian ambassador reports home confirmed that Henrietta Maria revelled in this role. She held her court at Oatlands Palace, south of London. She was self-confident. She was decisive. She was very prepared to override advice that she did not agree with. Edward Nicholas may not have seen eye to eye to her, but on many matters, it was to the Queen that he was directed for a decision by Charles, so he had no choice but to do her bidding. In terms of strategy, Henrietta Maria had reached the conclusion that a military coup was the best way to solve Charles's problems. And she even discussed this with the French ambassador. As we've just seen, Charles had resolved to follow that strategy in Scotland once politics seems to have failed, and in England had reached the view that conciliation with the reformers was now a cul-de-sac and he must defeat them, but must defeat them politically, maybe. In the absence of a coup, Henrietta Maria felt Charles was being politically too irresolute, that she, he should now be more firm, more forceful to 
encourage those who, although at heart supporters of His Majesty's greatness, have not had the courage to declare themselves hitherto. The definition of a party leader, basically. Well, the Queen and her husband and his new chief adviser were aligned, whatever the personal issues between them. So, as Charles left for the confrontations that we've already heard about in Scotland, his home team was set a challenge, build a party to defeat the reformers in Parliament, build a party and they will come. With the protestation doing the rounds and Pym ascendant, it would have looked like a mountain to climb, but we'll see how that goes next time. Until then, everyone, thank you very much for listening. Sorry to have taken something of our diversion into print, protestations and people, but I do love the protestation. Amazing thing. Anyway, next time we'll be firmly back into politics. Until then, thank you all for listening. Good luck and have a great week. <laughs>